Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message that I'm calling Dead to Sin, Alive to God. The inspiration for this message comes out of Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. And it says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is strong language. Only the bold can stand and say, I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive in God. If there were any Pharisees around today, and I think there still are actually, but you could get crucified for making that statement. What I want you to see through this message this morning is that once you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are as dead to sin as you will ever be. You can't get any more dead to sin than you already are. That word sin right there comes up quite a few times in the New Testament, well, the Old Testament as well, but comes up quite a few times. When you see that word, it would behoove you to look underneath the Scripture to see which Greek word it is because it makes a difference. There are two primary words that are used in the New Testament for sin. One is hamartia, the other one is hamartano. It sounds like tomato and tomato, but they're, they're different. They have the same root word, hamartia and hamartano, but one is a noun and one is a verb. Why is that important? In fact, just looking at this one here, you might not know which one that is exactly. But he said, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word sin there is the noun. So what it speaks of is that the person himself is dead to sin. It doesn't mean we don't mess up. It doesn't mean that we don't sin from time to time, have a bad thought, bad word, bad deed, whatever it may be. But the person, we're not talking about the action. Hamartano is the action. We'll get into that in a little bit. But he's literally saying the person is dead to sin. You're as dead as you're going to get. Now, he also says, we're alive to God. I like that part. In fact, you can't have one without the other. You can't be dead to sin and not alive in God. You can't be alive in God without being dead to sin. They're like a hand in a glove. They go together. So when we come to God, we become alive in God. And the truth of the matter is, we cannot get any more alive in God than we can be dead to sin. It, it's all the same. Why is it important to know that we're dead to sin and alive to God? I'm going to tell you why. It's because so many believers are trying to die daily to sin. You ever heard that expression? I crucify my flesh. Bro, I mean, boy, I, I could get going with my Pentecostal voice here. I, I mean, I used to preach it too. Brother, I get up in the morning, I crucify my flesh. I used to do all that, that charade stuff before I got out of bed in the morning. I would literally, I'd say, Lord, I'm putting on the helmet of salvation. And I would put it on. Lord, I'm putting on the breastplate of righteousness because I heard somebody preach something like that one time. Put all that stuff on before you get out of bed in the morning. Listen, I am dead to sin. I am alive in Christ, okay? The man is dead to sin. The person is dead to sin, and I'm alive in God. So all these believers are trying to die to sin daily, and I'll tell you how they measure their success. They measure their success by a list of do's and don'ts, and depending on where your checklists are at determines whether or not you died to sin that day or not, and whatever you got highlighted by the end of the day. In Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul reminds the believers that we're not only dead to sin, but we are dead to the law. In Romans chapter 7 and verse 1, 
He says, do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law. He said, listen, these are highly educated people who know the law. I'm speaking to men who know the law. Watch what he says, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. And he's not just talking the physical realm here. We always think physical, physical life and stuff like that. He's talking spiritual. It's a spiritual principle. He said, listen, the law can only govern you as long as you belong to that master. But when you come to Christ, he says, he cannot have authority over man because now we're alive to God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 4, the Bible says, so my brothers and sisters, I love this, you also died to the law. I told you we're not only dead to sin, but we have died to the law. He says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Let's skip up two more verses now to Romans chapter 7 and verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What are they talking about with the written code? They're talking about the the law. The law consisted of more than the Ten Commandments. It was festivals and it was dietary and there was so many things that was under that Jewish law. He says, you have died to that old written code. Romans chapter 7 and verse 8. I love what the Apostle Paul does. Is he reaches back in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11 where he says, you're dead to sin and alive to God. He reaches back there and he kind of merges that with Romans chapter 7 verse 4 where we're dead to the law and he just simply does this. He says, let me anchor my point. For apart from the law, sin is dead. The person of sin is dead. Oh, you know, what do you say to something like that? I'll tell you what I say to something like that. Thank you, Jesus. That's exactly what I say to something like that. Thank you, Jesus, because there is no way. Listen, you give me some Legos, I might be able to build you something. You give me a few parts, I might be able to put something together, but there is no way I could have got myself out of that mess, that mess of sin. In Romans chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we find these words. For if those who live by the law are heirs, Faith has no value, and the promise is worthless. What is the promise? The promise, as you read Romans chapter 3 and 4, is that Abraham would be heir of the world, and that his righteousness would be by faith. That was the promise. And he says, listen, if you think you can work to earn this, he says, faith has no value. And we know, we know throughout the word that everything in the kingdom of God moves by faith, doesn't it? Everything operates by faith. He says, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And he says, I love this, and it made me happy when I looked at it the other day. And he says, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, there's not an account that God says, okay, here's all your transgressions, Mark. Here's all your iniquities. Transgressions are just sins. Here's all your sins. Here's all the stuff you've done. I put them all in one account. He says, where there is no law, did we die to the law? He said we died to the law, we died to sin. And he said where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Quit letting that stuff stick to you. On the way to school yesterday, we stopped at a little gas station to use the restroom along the way. And you know how those restrooms, you know, they they only give you a second under the soap and then about two seconds under the water and you got to keep waving the stuff. I I can't stand those things, man. But so anyway, I I washed my hands and and I went over, I stuck my hands in that dryer. I'm looking all around for a paper towel machine. I'd rather use those things, man, because I got to touch the handle before I leave. 
So I stuck my hands in this machine, and all of a sudden, okay, they're getting all blown off nice and warm, and I start rubbing again, and I'm like, what is this? The soap is still right there in my hand. I'm like, what? And I went back to the sink for two seconds and got, got it off, stuck it back in there. Oh, they're getting nice and warm. I went to rub it. I'm like, what? The soap is still right there. I'm like, what? You know what? That's what the enemy wants to do to us, is he wants to make you think transgressions are stuck on you. Sin is stuck on you. Your iniquities are stuck on you. Friends, I'm going to tell you something. They cannot stick. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. I love it. (laughs) Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and be guaranteed. Over the years when I would read like Romans chapter 7, I'm not kidding, maybe you guys have done this too, I would almost take great delight in knowing that the Apostle Paul had bad days. The Apostle Paul seemed to fail about as often as I did years ago. And throughout Romans 7, you see what appears to be this tug of war. He literally says in Romans chapter 7 verse 15, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Oh, man, I took great comfort in that scripture. I'm like, man, the Apostle Paul, that great man of God, had the same struggle as I did? And this is what I would literally tell people, especially when I served at the Life Center. I used this scripture quite a bit. Now, again, this was years ago when I really didn't have the message of grace and the understanding of Romans chapter 7 really working in my heart. You know, they say, oh, I want to serve God with all my heart, but, you know, I just feel like I keep failing in this particular area. I just say, well, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul said the same thing, and I would take him through this verse right here. It was almost like the Apostle Paul was saying this. He was saying, when I get up in the morning, I make two lists of things. Here's my list. It's a spiritual list now of all the things I say I'm going to do today. (laughs) And then here's the list of things, all the things I say I'm not going to do today. You know, I've tried to make lists like that. And man, when you're making the list, it seems so spiritual. This is all the stuff I'm going to do, both natural stuff and spiritual stuff, family stuff, financial stuff. This list, I found it's really tough to work off lists. I mean, I feel very enthusiastic when I'm putting the list together. I look at the list when I'm done. I can't tell you how many lists I'm finding stored away here and there. That t- there's another one of those lists. Throw it away. But it's almost like he got up in the morning and he said, I'm going to make two lists of things. One of the lists is all the things I want to do today. And it would have been things like this. Well, <laughs> first of all, I'm going to pray without ceasing. <laughs> I'm going to go through my whole day today. And buddy, I am going to pray without ceasing. I'm going to walk in a constant state of prayer. Very, very very spiritual, isn't it? (laughs) And then he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to read 10 or 15 chapters in the Bible this morning too. I'm going to read that this morning. I'm going to really stuff myself full of the Word. And then you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to fast today. I'm going to anoint myself with oil. Brother, you're not even going to know that I'm fasting, man, but I'm going to be fasting for you today. And then I'm going to go witness today. I'm going to go knock on a few doors today, and I'm going to tell people about the love of Jesus. All these are wonderful spiritual disciplines, really. And then he says, hey, if I've got time left over, I'm going to work on solving that age-old mystery on how to get a camel through the eye of a needle. But he says, you know what? At the end of the day, guess what? I found I didn't pray without ceasing all day. I was going to read my Bible, but then I got a phone call. And somebody said, I need you right now, so I didn't get a chance to read my Bible. I was going to fast until a friend of mine called me about 11 o'clock and said, you know, I've been praying about you and I want to take you out to lunch. And I said, well, that must be God. (laughs) And then he said, I'm going to make another list. It's a list of the things I promise I will not do today. If someone says, I want you to carry my suitcase one mile, I'm not going to get mad at them. I'm going to be cool about it. I'm going to carry their suitcase a mile. 
If someone slaps me on the cheek, I'm going to turn my other cheek. I'm going to make sure I don't retaliate. But he says, you know what I found at the end of the day? (laughs) Somebody asked me to carry their suitcase. My first thought was, I'd be glad to, but what came out of my mouth was, you got some right to live, carry your own suitcase. (laughs) And then he hauled off and slapped me. And I was thinking about turning the other cheek, but then all of a sudden, my right hand came out of Chicago and clobbered the guy with a haymaker. Are you hearing my point? Have you walked down this street before? Oh, we've all been down the street. Listen, I know we have our shining moments. Believe me, we do. But Romans chapter 7 is not about the Apostle Paul wrestling with some sort of pet sin. Oh, I said I wouldn't do this today, but I did it anyway. He's comparing the flesh with the new nature for the apostle paul says in romans chapter 7 and verse 18 i know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh he didn't say my spirit man he said i know nothing good lives inside of me in my flesh now that's a hard scripture if you don't understand the flesh because when we look at galatians chapter 2 verse 20 We know he's not talking about the spirit man because look what he says. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Wait a minute. You just said nothing good lives in me. Now you're saying Christ lives in me. So we know that he's talking about two different realms because is Christ good? Absolutely, Christ is good. And Apostle Paul is not saying Christ is not good. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Believers should never say nothing good lives in them. God lives in you. Jesus lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. We have died to the flesh, the sinful nature even, and we have Jesus' nature living on the inside of us. Toward the end of Romans chapter 7, in verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul just finally throws his hands up in the air and he says this, (laughs) what a wretched man I am he says who will rescue me from this body of death and then before you get an opportunity to answer him he says let me answer it myself thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord what was he saying he was saying I didn't rescue me I didn't save me I didn't heal me I didn't transform me I didn't crucify myself. Jesus is the one who healed me. Jesus is the one who saved me. Jesus is the one I was crucified with. Jesus is the one. He said right there, he said, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the one that has delivered that wretched man from the body of death. Amen. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus do it? By making me dead to sin and alive to God. That's exactly how Jesus did it. All right, so then you have the other extreme of people, the other believers, that are literally working their fingers to the bone so that they'll feel alive in Christ. In fact, sometimes that's when they feel the closest to him is when they're working for him. I want to tell you something. I was there a bunch of years ago. That is not when I feel the closest. When I'm working for Christ, listen, I'm working. Right now, I'm working. Yes, I'm resting, but I'm working at the same time. When I feel closest to Christ, it's just when I'm all alone in my own little quiet house just listening to the Lord and feeling his unforced rhythms of grace surround me and overtake me. Oh, man. So, if this is where any of us are currently at, trying to work so we feel more alive in Christ, I'm going to tell you something. No condemnation. No condemnation to you. The wonderful truth is, though, that you are already dead to sin and you are alive to God 
dead men have nothing to prove. I want you to get this word picture in your heart. I've just dug a big pit, six or seven feet deep, and I filled it with vipers, cobras, very deadly snake. All of a sudden, I grab my stick. They're down there six, seven feet. And I start banging on the side of that pit. I want to tell you, those cobras would be up looking. What is going on, man? They'd be looking at you. If I had a corpse up on the top of that pit, and I rolled it off into that pit, I guarantee before he hit the bottom, he'd be getting bit like crazy. And once he was down there, they would continue to bite him and, and poison, put the poison in his flesh. Let me ask you this question. Is he any more dead at the bottom of the pit than he was at the top? Absolutely not. No more dead at the bottom of the pit than he was at the top. When you say stuff like, I'm dead to sin, you can get some controversy about that. You have the people that will pull this scripture on you here. I die daily. Is that in the Bible? Absolutely. Did the Apostle Paul write that? He sure did. Is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31? Absolutely is. Did the Holy Spirit give it to him under the inspiration? He sure did. Remember, in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, he said, we were dead to sin, and that word sin is the noun, hamartia. One says, I die daily. In other words, this is what I'm going to do every day. 1 Corinthians 15, 31. Romans 6, 11 says, I'm already dead to sin. So we know because that would be a real controversy right there to say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm dying daily to sin, but I'm already dead to sin. One speaks about now, the other one speaks about past tense. And here's what I heard the Lord say. Dying to sin, when we're talking about hamartia, the person, is not a progression, a daily progression. It's instantaneous. And this is the way the Holy Spirit spoke it in my heart the other night. In the Word, you see where it says that Jesus died once for all. And the Holy Spirit said to me this, Jesus died once for all so that you could die all at once. I give it, God. I'm no longer trying to die. He died for all so I could die all at once. Paul is not saying the person has to die daily. He's referring to the question, not the actual who we really are in the person. In fact, when you read this in context, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, what you see the Apostle Paul doing is, is literally saying, I face death daily. When he said, I die daily, he's talking about I face death. I don't know of anybody that faced death as much as Paul did. Three times he was shipwrecked at sea and spent a night and day treading water. Five times he was flogged, I mean beaten severely. One time he was stoned. In Acts chapter 28, he went to put some logs on the fire and a viper came out and fastened it to his hand. He shook it off in the fire. He was saying, I face death all the time. But he said, you know what, I've determined. He said, when I get up in the morning, I've already determined I face death. No matter what the cause is for the message that God has put inside of me, the message of grace, the message of his unconditional love, the message of his righteousness, the message that you've been reconciled, I've already conceded my life is worth preaching that message. My life is worth preaching that message. You beat me up if you want to. You flog me if you want to. You stone me if you want to. I am not shutting up. It's almost like the apostle Paul was saying, man, I got to go find me a street corner, get me a soapbox and get on it and start preaching about the love of God. It's just shut up in my bones. I got to do it. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, I want you to notice it says he is. He is, not he will be, not he's going to be. He is a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. I love this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, Paul faced tribulation. Shall distress, he faced distress. Shall persecution, he faced that. Famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake, he said, we are killed all day long. When he's talking about dying daily, he's talking about, listen, these are some of the things I encounter through life. Distress and peril and shipwrecks and floggings and beatings and stonings and stuff like that. I face that stuff all the time. But he said, listen, that is what I die to. I wake up in the morning going, I'm already dead to sin. I'm already alive to God. You can't kill me any more than I already am. So the question is this, how does the believer in Jesus die if you want to say daily or moment by moment, to sinful actions. See, that word sin is hamartano, which just refers to our actions, comes out of our soulish man. And I don't think any of us would deny that we occasionally mess up. We wish we wouldn't have said something or did something. How do we die daily to this sinful action? The first thing I want to say is this. Sinful actions do not determine identity. Your actions do not determine your identity. You can take a monkey and put a three-piece suit on him in nice shoes. You can put a tie around his neck. You can put an iced tea sitting right next to him and a cigar in the other hand and a newspaper. And when you watch the monkey doing all that stuff, reaching over, grabbing his tea, and I've even seen it where they scan the paper almost like they're reading it. He almost looks human, but he is still a monkey. His actions do not make him a human being. Any more than your actions, even when we misrepresent God, even when we misrepresent Christianity, does not make us less than a believer. Our transgressions he remembers no more. If you would have cut me off of total social media for a year or two and showed me Caitlyn Jenner on the screen here, I'd have said, yeah, that's a, that's a lady. But beneath all that makeup, all that pretty dress, that is still Bruce Jenner. I mean, I can't get that out of my head, man. I ate Wheaties all the time when I was a boy growing up. Bruce was always on the box. Right there he was. And are you kidding me? Beneath all of that stuff is still the true man. Underneath all, Caitlin, is Bruce Jenner. It doesn't change his identity, although he's trying to. I really didn't want to go there. I'm sorry. But you kind of get the picture what I'm talking about. So sometimes we misrepresent God. We make him look hard. We make him look mean. We make him look distant. I'm talking preachers do it too. Just the way they preach and the way they, the stuff they talk about and stuff like that. Friends, our actions do not change our identity. Why? Because we are dead to sin and alive to God, the person themselves. So, most Christians believe that you crucify the flesh through this spiritual list of do's and don'ts. Prayer, fasting, that will help crucify my flesh. Well, it's going to help build you up, yes. But that's what the Pharisees thought too. They prayed more than anybody. They memorized the whole Pentateuch, word for word. That's pretty spiritual, isn't it? But do you know it was the only group of people that Jesus couldn't do anything with? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, the Apostle Paul did say, I die daily, no doubt about it. I know of one way to die of those sinful actions, or at least really curtail those. And he tells us in context. I want you to see this here. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31. He said, I die daily. In context, I'm not jumping way back in the Old Testament. I'm not jumping way ahead. I'm in the book, three scriptures later. He says, awaken to righteousness and sin not. Now that word sin there is hamartano. It is sinful action. He's not talking about the person here. He's dealing with our actions now. 
He's saying, listen, when you awaken to righteousness, you know what you'll find? When you understand that you're righteous in God, when you understand there's nothing you can do to make yourself unrighteous, guess what? The result will be you'll sin not. It's the same message Jesus gave the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. When the woman was brought to him caught in the very act of adultery and the Pharisees were standing there with stones ready to stone her, he said, he that is without sin cast the first stone. That word sin only comes up one time in the Bible, in the whole New Testament, and it is the word anamartetos. It literally means sinless. So what he was saying to them, if you have never sinned, and they understood what he was saying. See, they weren't confused with hamartia and hamartano. He used this other word. So they knew that he was saying, if you have never ever sinned in your entire life, if you are sinless, then go ahead and cast the stone. If he had just used hamartia or hamartano, they would have just said, oh, I haven't sinned in a while. I I can stone her. But Jesus was so clever. Again, it's the only time that word sin is used in the Bible, in the Greek. He that is without sin casts the first stone. And of course, as you know the story, they all dropped their stones and walked away. And then he says to the woman, he says, where are your accusers? And she says, I don't see any accusers. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go ahead and leave your life of sin. What was Jesus doing there? He was imparting a righteousness to her. She could never leave her life of sin if something hadn't changed in her heart. But she had that revelation that in that moment, Jesus had made her righteous by saying, neither do I condemn you. There's no point in us walking around with condemnation on us, is there? In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. As I thought about that scripture and I meditated on this week, I thought, man, that scripture reinforces the revelation in my heart that I possess eternal life. Because why? Because I'm dead to sin and alive to God. You say, wait a minute, I don't see eternal life in there. Dead to sin, (laughs) alive to God. You know, I thought about that. Jesus never used the word love from the cross. Yet that was the, the greatest and most purest act of love ever known to man. Jesus never used the word grace from the cross, but everybody is saved by grace through faith. So just because you don't see that, you see the principle of that uh, in there in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Friends, there are no dead men on trial. I want you to know that. Since we're dead, it's impossible for us to ever be put on trial for our sins. Follow this train of logic. If it's impossible for us to be put on trial for our sins, then it's impossible for us to ever be found guilty of our sins. Would you agree? Can't get on trial, can't be found guilty. If it's impossible for us to be found guilty of our sins, then it's impossible for us to ever be punished for our sins. If it's impossible for us to be punished for our sins, it's impossible for us to be separated from our Father. If it's impossible for for us to be separated from our Father, then we know we are always with Him and we possess eternal life. No dead men on trial, friends. This is the way God said it to me. Our sin was dealt a death blow by Jesus on the cross so that sin could never separate the believer from God again. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, we find these words. You were dead in sins, and your sinful desires were not yet cut away. Then he gave you a share in the very life of Christ. For he forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you the list of his commandments which you had not obeyed. And as I was meditating on that scripture, the first thing that came to my mind is it literally says you were 
dead in sin. Not you are dead in sin. You were. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter and he's saying you were dead in sin. I'm not dead in sin anymore. I'm dead to sin. At the crucifixion, Jesus was being crucified between two thieves, two unnamed thieves. Why don't we know their names? We know Jesus was there. Why didn't they tell us the the names? Because it wasn't important. What the thieves represent is humanity, all humanity. All humanity was on trial too. And one thief said, I want to die in sin. The other said, I want to die to sin. The one that died to sin went to spend eternity with Jesus. The other one said, you know, I just reject you. I reject you. So we have an option. We can receive Christ or we can reject Christ. But he says, you were dead in your sins. And he says, then he gave you, who's he? God. Then he gave you a share in the very life of Christ. You know what? We've got like a 401k, and it's got some shares in there. You know when you buy shares, you buy it in hopes that they'll increase in value, don't you? Friends, I want to tell you something. When he gave me a share in the very life of Christ, I became the richest man in the world. In fact, I'm looking at the richest people in the entire world right now because you have a share. Do you notice it says a share? Not 10,000 shares. Not a million shares. It says he gave us a share in the very life of Christ. Oh, I love this. For he forgave how many sins? He forgave all sins. When Jesus died, all of our sins were in the future. And the Bible says that he forgave all sins our sins. And I like this too. He says, and blotted out the charges proved against you. He said, these were charges. These were proved against you. These are no longer allegations. They've moved to charges. You've been tried. You've been found guilty. He said, and I've blotted out all the charges against you. He said, the list of his commandments, which you had not obeyed. And I had to think just for a second about my list for a while here. And I just remember, I didn't think about the specific things I had done, you know, in my, before I knew Jesus, but I know my list was wide and long, high and deep, and it was increasing faster than the national debt. But the good news of it is this. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, the Bible says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love. Typically when we read this scripture, we think it's referring to our love for God. No, friends, it's God's love for you. And when you get rooted and established in God's love for you, what does he say will happen here? He says that you may have power. He says when you are rooted and established in love, power is going to manifest. I'm not talking about power just to cast out devils. I'm not talking about power for miracles, just for miracles and healings. And I'm not talking about power for just those kind of things. Yes, that will manifest when we walk in love. But I'm talking about less spiritual things, like my checkbook and my fork. When I gave my heart to Jesus in 1995, I realized everything I am belongs to him. I have never struggled with being a giver, never. It is a supernatural part of who I am. I'm talking about things that seem less spiritual. Do you know J.C. Penney, who founded J.C. Penney's? He was a believer before he even founded J.C. Penney's. And he said, God, and he was given, he was tithing on, I don't know, his salary was like 10 bucks a week or something like that. And he was tithing off of that. And then he said, God, if you'll make this business prosper, he said, rather than giving you 10 and living off the 90, he said, I'll give you 90 and live off the 10. And that's exactly what J.C. Penney did as he moved through life. It became 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and all the way to 90%, and he lived very, very well off the 10%. What a heart to have. I'm talking about the fork. 
I don't know if you've noticed or not, but this man and his wife, over the past eight months or so, how much have you guys lost between the two of you? 140 pounds. See, we didn't see that because it came off two pounds a week. We noticed there's something a little bit different, but I want to tell you something, that was intentional. And when I was talking to Steve about that, he said, Mark, he said, it's this message of grace. I don't know if you remember saying that, but he said, it's this message of grace that empowered us to do that. We didn't do this under condemnation. We didn't do this under any other compulsion other than he said it was this message of grace that I sensed empowering us uh, to be able to do this. He says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. You see, friends, I'm not trading my sorrows one by one. I have traded my entire list. List of what? Failures, disappointments, transgressions, sins, worthless shares. You name it, I traded my whole list when he said, Mark, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he says, you were dead in sins and your sinful desires were not yet cut away. Then he gave you a share in the very life of Christ, for he forgave all your sins and blotted out the charges proved against you, the list of his commandments, which you had not obeyed. And then one of my favorite portions of scripture in the entire Bible is this one right here. He took this list. You remember the list I just gave you? Brokenness, sins. He took that entire list, the Bible says, of sins and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. That's a big word, that word destroyed. That's why I put it in bold there. The Bible says he destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. Let's look at what the word destroyed means. To cause something to end or no longer exist, to cause the destruction of something, to damage something so badly that it cannot be repaired or its previous condition reversed. Our list of sins was destroyed. They weren't just disfigured. They weren't just marred. They weren't just damaged. They weren't just thrown in the city dump. They were destroyed. And how did it happen? By nailing it to Christ's cross. Only his blood has the power to destroy sin like that. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. In this way, God took away Satan's power. How did he do that? By nailing the written code in our sins to his cross. In this way, God took away Satan's power to accuse you of sin. And God openly displayed to the whole world Christ's triumph at the cross, where your sins were all taken away, where we could say, I am dead to sin and alive to God. When we birthed this church and we were looking for a name, we were looking in the spirit realm. We didn't look in any phone books. We didn't call up anybody asking and say, what do you think? And the Lord clearly said, Triumphant Grace Ministries. That's because he knew that we would stand in the pulpit and not compromise the grace of God and the love of God. And we would preach the triumphant grace message of Christ's cross, whereby his shed blood would once for all take away all of our sin. Several years ago, I preached the funeral of a 32-year-old man. And I preached that funeral with power, under a strong anointing and heavy conviction, if you will. And when I was done, I closed that service out and I stood off to the side so that the family could come by. Five weeks before that young man died, I personally sat in his living room with him and he put his hands in mine and I led him to Jesus. I had no problem knowing where that man was at. 
But after I was done, this is typically what happens as a minister. You'll have a certain amount of people that will come by you and shake your hand. Most of them won't even look in the eyes. They're just like, Pastor, that was a good message or whatever. They'll say something like that. Thank you for comforting our hearts. You hear all kinds of things. So I saw this older couple coming. And when she got to me, he didn't do any talking. She did. Many people want to just shake your hand. She wanted to shake me. You know why? Because I used that scripture, absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And she said, Preacher, you need to read your Bible. She said to me, you need to go look in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. She said, the dead know nothing. See, I just got through saying when we're absent with the body, instantly in the presence of the Lord, and she's trying to yank the slack out of me by saying the dead know nothing. Let's look at that scripture. It says, the living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. Friends, it's only the people that are dead in sin that know nothing. I'm dead to sin. I know Christ. I know his resurrection power. And the Bible says, my sheep follow me because they know my voice. I'm not only dead to sin, but I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin can never separate the believer from God. You say, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute now. You have crossed the line because you have not read this scripture. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. You say, Pastor Mark, what do you say about that? Very easy. Two words. Old covenant. You say, well, we still have to obey the old covenant. Really? Have you read Hebrews chapter 8? I sure have. Let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. The subtitle, when you go into Hebrews chapter 8, it will talk about Jesus, the high priest of a new covenant. Jesus is our high priest. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. So when it says the ministry, but the ministry Jesus has received, Jesus became our high priest. And he became the last high priest. We don't need any more high priests. He sat down, the Bible says, at the right hand of the Father, signifying it's a finished work. Jesus became our high priest. So when it says that his ministry is superior to theirs, what he's literally saying is that his ministry, if we go back and we look at the first high priest, it was Moses who consecrated his brother Aaron. Aaron became that first high priest. And Jesus, of course, our last high priest. And so what they're literally saying is Jesus's ministry is superior to Moses's ministry. And he said, if there would have been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. In other words, he's also saying the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. So we have a better high priest and we have a better covenant. Then it says, but God. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because, now watch what he says here. Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So what he's talking about, he's, he's talking about the Israelites, of course. And he's saying there was a time when they did not remain faithful to the covenant they had in place. And he says, and I turned away from them, 
says the Lord. In order to understand that very quickly, you have to look at Exodus chapter 19, verse 8. You're asking for a bunch of laws. You're asking for a bunch of rules. Moses was trying to talk them out of it, but here's what they said. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. You know what the best answer to that is? By the grace of God, I need grace to do what God has called me to do. That's what they should have said. I need the grace of God to help me. And you notice that's in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments came. Didn't take very long, did it? And before Moses could get down the mountain with those Ten Commandments, they had already fashioned a golden calf and made an idol and had already broken the laws. Here's what I love about us, though. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, the Bible says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I'm not advertising and, and encouraging anybody to be unfaithful, but it says, if we are unfaithful, he is still faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And then the Hebrews uh, chapter 8 closes out with two powerful scriptures, verses 12 and 13. It says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first covenant obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Friends, I couldn't be any more dead to sin, and at the same time, I couldn't be any more alive to Christ. I'm not just numb to sin, I'm not just indifferent to sin. I'm not even just incompatible with sin. I am dead to sin and alive to God. God has transformed each and every one of us, our spiritual makeup, so that we can never again be separated from our Father. One of the first songs I ever learned when I first gave my heart to Jesus was Crucified with Christ. It came out in 1995, the very same year I gave my heart to Jesus. And what I liked about that song, not only does it have a, a good set of lyrics, not only does it have good music to it and stuff like that, but it was like it was my autobiography. It begins by saying, but when I look back on what I thought was living, I'm amazed at the price I chose to pay. And to think I ignored what really mattered because I thought the price was too heavy to pay. But when I finally reached the point of giving in, I found his cross was calling even then. And even though it took dying to survive, I've never felt so much alive. For I am crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I but Christ that lives within me. His cross will never ask for more than I can give, for it's not my strength but His. There's no greater sacrifice, for I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. And when I think about that song, and I think about Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that is precisely where it came from. They wrote that song based upon that scripture, I am crucified with Christ, literally means dead to sin, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, alive to God. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, it says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Colossians 3, verse 3, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You can see, when you find death, you'll find life nearby. You have died to your sin. You're alive in God. You're alive in Christ. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 really says it so beautiful. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins, and live for righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. In closing, this is what I want to say. I want to share something with you that will change 
your life, your personal life, and will change your ministry. I think everybody wants to see change in their personal life. Everybody wants to, to know that their ministry is effective. I showed you through the Word in Hebrews chapter 8 that Jesus' ministry was greater than Moses' ministry. He said it in the Word. We see it in the Word that the, the New Covenant is far superior to the Old Covenant, right? It's founded on better promises. So, as I said before, we have a better high priest, we have a better covenant. I want you to see this picture. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, it reads like this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. I mean, this was greater than any 4th of July celebration. You can imagine. His face shone like the sun, bright. And his clothes became as white as the light. I mean, piercing. Oh, wow. Just then there appeared before them, before the, those three disciples, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. What do these three powerhouse ministers represent? You've got Moses, you've got Elijah, and you've got Jesus, and in that order too. Moses represents the covenant of law. There's no question about that. Jesus represents the covenant of grace. But then you have Elijah right in the middle, and Elijah was a prophet. We often think that a prophet's role is to go around prophesying. That's one thing a prophet does. His whole day is not spent going around prophesying over people. He has other things to do. Elisha had a school of ministry. They have things to do. The prophet's role was not so much as to just prophesy. They were covenant enforcers. Covenant enforcers. That was their role. So Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. He says, if you wish, I will put up three shelters. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know, ministers today are still doing that. They're putting up shelter for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And they don't even realize that Jesus' ministry is far superior. We don't need a tent for Moses today. We don't need a tent for Elijah today. They're not equal in terms of the, the, the manifestation of the covenant in the ministry. I thought this morning about Moses. He had an awesome experience on Mount Sinai. He went up there. He saw the burning bush. He saw God's finger come out of heaven and write the Ten Commandments on those tablets of stone. He even got to see God's glory from the backside. He got to hear God's voice. This is a powerful experience, all on Mount Sinai. And then I thought about Elijah. Elijah was in front of King Ahab on Mount Carmel. And he took 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, some of the most powerful men in, in Ahab's kingdom. They called on their God all day long, didn't do anything. He called on God, and as you know the story, what happened. Love that experience. Mount Carmel. But I want you to know something. My hope is not built on what happened on Mount Sinai. My hope is not built on what happened on Mount Carmel. My hope is built on what happened at Mount Calvary when my Jesus stretched out his arms and he said, Father, I want them to be dead to sin and alive to you in me. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, This 
is my beloved son. Hear the father say that to you today, Michelle. This is my beloved daughter. Lilia, hear him say, this is my beloved baby. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then he says, listen to him. Notice he didn't say, listen to Moses. He didn't say, listen to Elijah. He said, listen to my son. This is the one I'm well pleased with. Oh, man. The Bible says, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. That's the part I'm talking about that will change your life and will change your ministry. You see, when they woke up, I believe they passed out, actually. When they woke up, Moses had disappeared. Moses was gone. What did Moses represent? The covenant of the law. When they woke up, Moses was gone. Elijah had disappeared. You see, Elijah was born under the law. Elijah knew nothing but the law. He enforced the old covenant of law. But when the covenant of law, which was Moses, had left, Elijah had no choice but to leave with him. That's all he knew. You say, then, Pastor Mark, why didn't God allow Elijah to introduce and enforce the new covenant of grace? Because God, in his sovereignty, had picked two others to do that. The one he picked to come in the spirit of Elijah, we see in, I believe it's Malachi chapter 4, it refers to John the Baptist. You see, you can't have a man born under the law introducing grace. John was one of only two people that was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. Jesus was one and John was one. Jesus is the grace man. John's name means grace. Do you see? Grace himself introduced grace. You see, when Jesus was coming out to the Jordan River, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And God didn't need Elijah to enforce our covenant. He has the Holy Spirit to enforce our covenant of grace. John his message was, the Lamb is coming. The Holy Spirit's message was, the Lamb has left. Friends, do you want your hearts and ministries to radically change? Train yourselves. Train yourselves to listen and look for the beloved Son. That's what I did a few years ago when I said, Father, every time I approach your word, I want to look for Jesus. I want to listen for Jesus. And that's where this ministry came out of. Father, we are no longer alive to sin. We are dead to sin, but we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And Daddy, I want to thank you for your grace, and I want to thank you for this revelation. It's just so simple. It's so simple to see as we are established and rooted in love and righteousness. We get away from that mentality, that condemning mentality that we don't live up, that somehow you've stored up all of our transgressions when your word clearly tells us our transgressions you remember no more. Daddy, take this word now and cause us to walk triumphantly in life as we go about, not with a sense of arrogance, but with a sense of hope and inspiration and love that our daddy is always with us. We have eternal life. Nothing can separate us from our daddy ever again. Father, we thank you. We are not looking to Moses. We are not looking to Elijah. We're looking to the one that died at Mount Calvary and his name is Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.